So the suggestion was made uh, to study some Midrashim that relate to Akedat Yitzchak. Now obviously the reason for that is uh, because we're on the eve of Rosh Hashanah and one of the one of the stories that is associated very strongly with Rosh Hashanah is of course Akedat Yitzchak. We read Akedat Yitzchak on the second day of Rosh Hashanah as the Torah reading, but it's incorporated into the themes of Rosh Hashanah in multiple ways. I mean, obvious, the most obvious, that in the tefillah itself of Zichronot, we mention Akedat Yitzchak, that Hashem should remember the binding of Yitzchak as a zechut for us. So we expl- it's explicitly mentioned the Amidah. The reason why we use a ram's horn that's given in the Gemara, why we use a ram's horn is to remember Elosh Yitzchak, to remember the ram of Yitzchak that was offered in place of, of Yitzchak. And one of the most powerful, in my personal opinion, obviously it's somewhat subjective, but in my personal opinion, one of the most powerful parts of the uh, liturgy of uh, Rosh Hashanah, for us at least, is the Oked Vahanekad, which is which is basically a retelling of the story of the Akedah, but from the, what makes it powerful, there are two... There are two piyutim that were that that are uh, that we read regularly during the season that are about the akedah. One is imafes uh, right? That we read in selichot, and also is read on second day of Rosh Hashanah and many batekneset. And then there's oked vanekad, or also known as echarei ratzon. People know it by oked vanekad because that's the refrain that you say again and again. Really, it's called Echari Ratzon. And <coughs> there's a, actually somebody... Th- during the day, during the day. You do it before Shofar usually. Yeah, it's, it's for Shofar. Yeah, basically this weekend. Yeah, it's pre, pre-Shofar. So, yeah, so like the, 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 um, the thing with that, the, I actually saw an interesting article comparing the two PU team and, just, and basically saying like, you know, Echari Ratzon is a much more powerful, developed... Uh, moving piyut then imafes of course it's somewhat subjective but what makes Echaratzon especially powerful uh, is that it speaks from the subjective experience of Avraham Sarah and Yitzchak and the emotions it evokes the emotions of the Akedah and that's really what makes it so powerful imafes touches on that a little bit because it describes like what Yitzchak said to his father you know uh, and it describes what Avram said to Yitzchak, and there is a little bit of a, a tinge of, you know, imagining what that interaction would be like. But in Echaratzon, it's very um, in your face, you know. It, yeah, it's, it, it really jumps out at you, and it really grabs you, and especially the parts about Sarah Imenu, and the parts about Yitzchak, talking about what is my mother going to, you know, take my ashes to my mother, and you know, all those things that are very... Um, uh, really make you envision yourself in the Ashes. circumstance of the Akedah. That's what he says. I thought we do funerals. I thought we don't cremate. He was going to be burned as a korban, so he would have been ashes at the end. He, normally we don't, obviously. But Has there ever been a human korban before? No. Not a, not a Jewish one. <laughs> not a Jewish one. There have been, in, there, there were a lot of Aztec ones. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah, but yeah, so uh, uh, the Echar Ratzon was written in, is older, it was written in the medieval period uh, by, uh, what is the name of the, um, 
I can't remember his name, but it's, uh, it was actually a very, he had a very interesting story. I don't want to go too in, into it too much because it'll take us too far off the topic, but it's older, it's older. Yeah, the Ejai Ratzon is older. And um, in my personal opinion, and I think, I think you could make an argument that it's objectively more powerful because it deals with those raw emotions in a very direct way. And even though Ima Fisrovakin also touches upon it, it does it in a it, it doesn't do it at the same level and it doesn't have the same moving quality in the in the writing. I, that's somewhat subjective, but I also think it's supported by the object I think it's supported by the objective uh, objective data. And I actually read an interesting article about it years ago that, that uh, spoke about that too. Anyway. But that's why we're talking about the Akedah. So we're going to talk about some Midrashim that deal with the Akedah. I think everybody pretty much knows the text. I took out a Chumash because I feel like, you know, you have to, you have to do that. But um, everyone is, is more or less familiar with the text. Hashem says to Avram, and, and it's actually in the Sidur, is the first thing in, in the Sidur every day. Shulchan Aruch says the person is supposed to read the Akedah every day. It says, Vayomer Hashem al Avram, Lech lecha me'otzecha mimolat on. I'm reading the far, first Lech lecha. Hashem, I need to get to the one of Vayera. Right, Hashem says to Avram, uh, he, he again says to him uh, to go, but in a different context. So Hashem said to, after these words, okay, that's a whole, that's a whole other thing. It's a whole other midrashic world that actually isn't included in this, uh, in these midrashim that we uh, that we pulled because I pulled out of the midrash Tan uh specifically this chapter. But Rashi, uh, you know, mentions uh, the, the, what the Midrash Rabbah does with, um, with Acharat Varimaele. What the Gemara talks about, what is Acharat Varimaele after these things? What is the context of the Akedah? We might touch upon that a little bit later, but that's not explicitly mentioned in the, uh, in the Midrash Tan Chuma that we're doing now. Is there a practical difference between Midrash Tan Chuma and Midrash Rabbah? Different books. I'm saying in the styles of the way... Oh, yeah. If you're looking to read a Midrash for, like, uh, introductory, the Midrash Tan Chuma is... Very easy to read. It's written completely in Hebrew, uh, more or less. Like there might be like some random words that they throw in that are Greek or you know, like the type of Greek that the Gemara will use. You know, but that, that snuck in as uh, uh, as uh, Hebrew word or semi-Hebrew word. But uh, Midrash Tanchuma reads very. It's a very light read. It's very easy read. Midrash Rabbah is written in heavy Aramaic. It's much harder to read. They're both very old texts. They're both old. Both old. Midrash Rabbah, if I'm not mistaken, I'm not like, you know, I don't have the best memory for history, but uh, Midrash Rabbah is like, is among the oldest of the Midrashic compilations. And it's written in a very challenging Aramaic. It's written in Aramaic that's closer to the Targumim and closer to the Aramaic of like the Talmud Yerushalmi. And the, uh, not like a Talmud Bafli that's a little bit closer to Hebrew and therefore a little bit easier for people who study Gemara to, to follow. So it's a harder uh, Aramaic, um, but Midrash written by Tanaim. Yeah, written by Tanaim. It's a collection of old Tanaim. Yeah, and the Midrash Tanchuma is written in a more pure Hebrew. So in that way, it's uh, a lot easier to read if you're looking for nice Midrashim to add to your or enrich your reading of Parashat Shavuah. Uh, it, it's it, it's very easy to access. And it has beautiful uh, midrashim and some of the famous midrashim that you that you know and maybe you don't even know that you know they're from midrash and chuma for sure. Anyway, so So we know that Hashem tests Avram, whatever that means, 
Uh, and, I, and he says to him, Abraham, and he says, Here I am. And he says, Take your son, your only one, the one that you love, Yitzchak, and go. Lech lecha. That's why. That's why I had in my head the lech lecha. The lech lecha there to Moria. Go for yourself, or just go, because really that's what lech lecha means. To the land of Moria. Va'aleu sham la'ola, and offer him there as a burnt offering. Alachadarim asher omari lecha on one of the mountains that I'm going to show you. Okay, and so that's the command. Now everybody notices immediately textual, interesting textual phenomena like the repetition of bincha yichidecha asher avta, and of course Rashi. Picks up on that as well, and uh, he might even quote. Uh, I think the Midrash Rabbah also has a uh, you know has a similar interpretation to what we're going to see in the Midrash Tanchuma of of those phrases. And um, and just to go a little bit further in the text, and then we'll dump, jump into the Midrash. So Vayashkem Avram Babokir, Avram gets up early in the morning, which is his characteristic uh, response to all of the divine commands. You notice that whenever he's given an order of what to do, including Brit Milan, including Akedat Yitzchak, gets up early in the morning. Vayachavoshet Chamor, he saddles his donkey. Vayikachachin Rabbi Dovi Yitzchak Meno. Vayivakatze Olav Vayakomelech Alamakom Hashem Alav Elohim. And uh, he gets the wood ready and he goes towards the place that God told him. So he doesn't exactly know where he's headed, but he knows the general region and, uh, and he's headed to do the Akedah. So the Midrash, of course, what the, see the Psukim of the Torah are very austere, meaning to say that they don't offer much. And this is true about Tanakh in general, not always, but most of the time. The Tanakh doesn't offer very rich descriptions of things. It just kind of like lays out what happened. Hashem said this to Abraham. Abraham says, okay, I'm going to, you know, he gets up in the morning, actually doesn't say anything. He gets up in the morning and he goes. And he takes the two attendants with him. And we do have a moment here, okay? So we have Bayom HaShlishi, and on the third day, On the third day, he finally sees the place from a distance. Now again, all these details... On the surface, like how many days it took him to get there, you know, how many phrases Hashem uses to describe Yitzchak, all of these we can gloss over in a casual reading. We won't notice them. He tells the attendants to wait. We're going to go and we're going to bow down and come back. Meaning we're just going to pray. It's, uh, we're going to pray and we, we need to have some hitbodidut uh, or whatever. You know, we have to be alone. So you guys stay here. We're going to go. They're going to eat what? He wants to be alone. He, want, he wants to, you know, have quiet, be together with just a, him and his son. And he takes the wood for the offering and he places it on Yitzchak, meaning to carry it. And he carries the knife and the fire, you know, or the flint or whatever it was he was going to make the fire from. Not exactly clear. And they go together. Now, up till now... We haven't heard any words, really, from Avraham or Yitzchak about what they're about to do. Because Hashem told Avraham to go do it. Avraham doesn't raise any objection to the command or ask any questions about it. Uh, and the only time we hear him speaking is when he tells his attendants to wait and we'll be right back, you know? He says to kill him. He says, Hashem said, offer him as a burnt offering. So it certainly sounds like... I mean, there are some Mepharshim that say that, you know, Hashem was deliberately vague and, that's, and later on he says, no, I just said to bring him up. I didn't say to bring him as an offering. But the pshat of the meaning is a burnt offering, right? So there's a lot of details that the Midrash is going to latch on to that, again, a casual reader may or may not notice, like the fact that there are three terms used for Yitzchak, the fact that it specifies how many days it took to get there. That's not really important for the story. It just could have said that he went to Eretz Moriah. You know, 
the fact that it mentions that he saddled his own donkey, all of these things are details that are not really necessary for the story. And then we come to something really super interesting from the human perspective for a second, because all of a sudden we see a father and son having a conversation that you could just imagine a father and son walking together on a camping trip, having this conversation, and it's just like, you know, very mundane kind of a conversation, right? Yitzchak says to Avram, and he says, Dad, basically, Avi, here I am, my son. I see fire and wood. Where is the animal for the burnt offering? And he gives him a very religious answer. God will find for us the, uh, the, the, the animal. And they walk together. Okay? So that again is very interesting. Why does the Torah even tell us that? That they had this conversation. Yitzchak's like, oh, by the way, Dad, you know, what's going on with the wood and fire? Aren't we missing something very important, like the actual thing we're going to sacrifice? And the dad doesn't say, it's you. actually, it's you. So he doesn't say that. But he also doesn't say, I'm not really sure. He says, God is going to find it for us, right? Elohim you will choose, you will choose the set. Now, it actually doesn't turn out to be a set. Because a set is a goat or a lamb, and, a, and, and it ends up being a ram. But, uh, uh, right, it's a, it, it's a little bit of a different, uh, uh, a little bit of a different uh, thing than normally we think. We think of, uh, uh, of the, um, oh, actually, I guess it could be, because I guess it could be, because Ayl is a grown-up kebis. So, so usually when we say seh, we're talking about goat or sheep, but it could be. I mean, I guess it's the same, same general category. Yeah. But obviously, Yitzchak is not a seh. Right? So, uh, so, in that way, you could see this as Avram telling a little white lie to his son as they go to do something that he's afraid is going to scare him. And I'm pretty sure that's probably how most people read the text. Right? They mostly read the text that is this wishful thinking on Abraham's part that he's saying uh, God will choose the, uh, the, you know, the set for the offering and really in the back of his mind he's hoping that God is going to choose a ram or a goat or a lamb uh, instead? Or is, um, is, the, is Abraham like basically 100% sure that he's going to sacrifice Yitzchak and he's just kind of like not wanting to scare him, you know? So that's the, the, when you read the text, these things come out, but it's just, I find it fascinating that the Torah puts this pasuk in. Because again, it has no relevance seemingly to the unfolding story, which is about Avraham. He might have also said, hey, is there any place we can go to the bathroom around here? Oh yeah, over there behind the tree. He doesn't say that. I'm sure they had to sometimes use the bathroom over three days of walking. Doesn't tell us anything about that. What did they eat on the way? Did they bring snacks? Bamba probably. You know, well, well, no, because it's peanuts. So they probably have peanuts. We, we, don't, we don't know anything about the details of the trip except one interaction where Yitzchak says, Dad, uh, where's the lamb? Where's the set? Because the set could be anything from the family of lamb or goat, right? You know? And, um, and uh, his father says, uh, his father says, Hashem will choose it. Interesting that we hear this like snippet of conversation, but that's the last thing they say to each other. Because then when they get there, and he ties him up, 
You know, they come to the place, he puts the wood, he ties up Hassan, he takes the knife. There's actually no conversation going on. Like, Dad, what are you doing? Why are you tying me up on the uh, wood? Uh, what are you doing with that knife, Dad? You know, there's no discussion over there. There's only a discussion during the part that they're walking and, 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 and Yitzchak is curious about what's missing. So it's very interesting that at the moment of truth, so to speak, there's no actual, uh, there's no actual discussion. But let's get into what the Midrash says. And I think the Midrash, perhaps, is very sensitive to this. And this is what I'm talking about in terms of uh, as a as a very powerful field. Because what it does is it puts you into... Uh, oftentimes we read the text of the Tanakh at arm's length. Like it's just a... Uh, it's very abstract. It's kind of, you know, it's, a, it's an abstract story and we don't relate to it at, on, a, on a visceral level, on a really personal level. Like imagine what it would be like if you yourself were actually in a situation and God said, take your child and sacrifice them. What would that feel like? What would you answer your child if they asked you a question like that? What would the child say? What would they think? What would the mother think? Like all of these things we banish from our minds kind of. And I think it's true with a lot of Tanakh stories because we kind of reduce... The, stu- the, the, the characters in the Tanakh to caricatures. They're just sort of like figures that exist in the abstract and outside of the realm of emotion. But if you put yourself into the psyche of one of the characters, you can relate so much better to some of the things that we look at very critically. Let's say that the Bnei Yisrael did in the Midbar or even Paro. What he did and how, you know, how obstinate he was. Or even what the kings of Israel did in the end of Sefer Lachim that you get so frustrated with their behavior. You can relate to it a lot better and understand it a lot better if you're honest. If you, if you honestly try to walk a day in their shoes, as, you say, as they say, and, and, and experience what they must have been experiencing. And so when you think... Abraham was fighting his whole life against exactly what his brother Right, right, right. That's, that's, that's part of it. Yeah, and, and also, it's even more than that. Let's see what the Midrash does with it, because I think it's very important to understand what the Midrash says. The Midrash, because one of the questions is, what is the relevance of this test to us? Why is this test significant for us? There's a lot of different possible answers. But the Midrash, I think, takes a certain line of understanding it that's very helpful for us to appreciate why it's part of Rosh Hashanah. So it says, the first part that I put there, Amalo, he said, Ezebin. Hashem said, take your son. So Avram said, which one? Which son? Because he has, he has two. Amalo, you're only one. He says, one of them is Yechid one. One is the, the only one of Sarah. One is the only one of Agar. They're both the only one. They're both Bechor. They're both firstborn. Yitzchak is a Bechor and also so is Yishmael. So uh, which one? He says, no, Asher Avta, The one that you love. He said, What do you mean? I love both of my uh, children. Who's going to say one of them I love, one of them I don't love? And we're going to say that? said, The one you really love. He said, Is there a limit to a parent's love? A parent is going to love his, his children. And we know that Avram loved Ishmael and really wanted to see him succeed and was very distressed when he got banished. He, you know, he was a person. So, uh, so he was very upset about that. And so what does, the, what does Hashem finally say? Okay? What is this Midrash really trying to show us. Okay? So, it, it, what is the, the Midrash, just like if you think about the other classic example of this, Lech lecha me'artzecha, mi'molatecha, mi'betavicha, 
right? When there are three different ways to de- describe the location from which Avram has to leave, okay? What does that mean? What are those different layers of, uh, of description really getting at? Difficulty. Difficulty, why? Right. Right. So I think if you read the text literally, what do you what do you walk away with? You walk away with the emphasis. I think what you're saying, right? If you read the pshat, what you're getting is the emphasis that Hashem is saying, "Your son, your only one, the one you love." Meaning, he's really emphasizing how special Yitzchak is to Abraham. But the midrash flips it around a little bit and says, actually. This is showing the levels of resistance that Avraham had to the task. Because for each one, he's trying to say, I don't know what you're talking about, which one? Right? Like a person who's kind of in denial. I don't know anything you're talking about. Your son, or which one? Which, which son? What do you mean? You know, the, the, the only one. What do you mean? They're, they're both the only one. It sounds like a person who's playing dumb, so to speak, right? But the Midrash, by saying that, just like, leave me'artzacha, my country... I have a sense of my country is very general. No, no. The place you were born. Okay, the place you were born is the place that's most familiar to you. You have a connection with it. Mi betavicha, your family's house. Like, that's a, it's different because he's not responding to each one, but it's showing you the levels of attachment that are involved in making that break. The hardest one maybe is betavicha. Like, if your family goes, then it would be a little bit easier. Okay? If it's just from your, you know, from your birthplace... You know, it's, it's hard, but if your family is coming, it's, you know, different. so like the levels of attachment and the levels, therefore, of resistance to the command. In other words, what it's showing you is Avram's, what we would call like willful ignorance. I don't want to say a negative thing about Avram, but what it's showing you is that he's resistant to the idea psychologically. So by, by saying et bincha, et yechidcha, asher avta, et yitzchak, the Chazala reading it not as an emphasis, an emphasis on Yitzchak, but as an emphasis on how many layers of potential resistance does Avram have to overcome in order to receive this message, okay? And that's really what a lot of the Midrash is, because the Akedah, mainly in the understanding of Chazal, what is really the Akedah about? The Akedah is about Avram Avinu, his story is a story of somebody who sacrificed every attachment in favor of his attachment to God. Every love that he had, every passion that he had, every relationship that he had, every connection that he had, was subordinated to or abandoned for the sake of his relationship with God. That was the only... So he left his family. And then he had to separate from Lot, which we see wasn't a simple thing. But as soon as he separated from Lot, Hashem gave him new promises and new uh, things. And he had to separate from Yishmael even. And that was difficult. There was separation after separation after separation for Abraham. And what? Which one? He had to send him away. He sends him away. So he didn't want to. So every stage of the way is Abraham separating himself from an attachment in order to demonstrate or because of it's, it's holding him back from a more complete devotion to God. That's what the, that's what the Akedah is really about. The ultimate of ultimate attachments that he had was to Yitzchak. And that's why the Midrashim say, even though I didn't put it on this uh, sheet, 
one of the interpretations of after these things was that the Satan said something that, that Avraham had a big party which is right before this story Avraham had a big party when Yitzchak was weaned and he was celebrating and the Satan said hey Avraham had a big party and he didn't bring one korban to you it was just a party he just had a party. He had, like they say, the bar mitzvah is a lot of bar and not a lot of mitzvah. Right? Right? He had a party. You can't do that. Without a Turning 13, not 18. That's true. Or 21. That's true. Yeah, here's 21. Yeah. He said, you can't have a cell. So what does it show? It shows that Avraham Avinu, after all his overcoming of his attachment to earthly things and his putting of Hashem as the absolute and the one and only, he started to allow himself to get attached to having Yitzchak for its own sake, forgetting why he was given Yitzchak, forgetting the reason. And so therefore Hashem says to the Satan in the Midrash, even if I ask him to sacrifice the son, he'll do it. Okay, that's what the Midrash says. But what is the Satan always? The Satan is the Yetzirah in Midrash. The Gemara says, the Satan and Malachamavit and Yetzirah are the same thing. The Gemara says it. I didn't make it up. Right? So what does that mean? That means that whenever the Satan is talking, it's just the personification of what's going on inside Avraham. Meaning, Avraham needed this experience because he was developing an attachment to Yitzchak that was purely sentimental. And that was no longer related to his relationship with Hashem. It was independent of his relationship with Hashem. And so Hashem had to jar him back into the proper perspective. That's what the, how the Chazal understand. So that explains why they say, Hashem is saying to him, take your son. Uh, which son? I don't know what you're talking about. You know, the only one. The, the, the one you love. I, I love everyone. I, I love all of them. No, Yitzchak. Meaning that it, that is showing you the resistance he had to the idea that he would have to part with Yitzchak. Maybe Ishmaeli would have been easier to, for him to do it because he had a more... Uh, Maybe it's a, a more complicated relationship, right? A more ambiguous relationship with Ishmael. But Yitzchak, that was where his weak spot was, okay? And so Hashem is, that's the idea of the Midrash. And that's why the Midrash emphasizes also, it says, Avram Avinu gets up early in the morning. He saddles his own donkey. He had a lot of chauffeurs. He had a lot of attendants. Why is he saddling his own donkey? What does it show you? It shows you, it shows you how zealous he was to fulfill this commandment. In other words, because he recognized, the greatness of Avram was, he recognized he had this area that he needed to perfect in himself and he immediately rushed to do it. He didn't say, wait a second, how, you know. He immediately began the process. Right? They compare him to Bil'am because it says Bil'am also saddled his own donkey. And it says, oh, His hatred for the Jews made him saddle his own donkey instead of having one of his attendants do it. In the case of Avram, his, uh, his love of Hashem made him do it. Right? Who's hatred of the Jews? Bilam. Remember Bilam, the guy who cursed him? So it says, On the third day. What? Yeah. These two parts are in tandem, meaning at first he's resistant and then he's... Yeah, so meaning at first, as soon as he perceives what God is really telling him and he understands it and accepts it, so he immediately acts to fix it. He doesn't say, I realize I have this problem, but, you know, I'll let it go like most of us do. Like we have those moments where we recognize, yeah, you know, I realize this is really a problem for me. I'm too attached to this or I have this bad habit or I have this, you know, 
you know, I, 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 you know, I have this failing, uh, but pass me another cup of coffee. Uh, you distract yourself. Right? Most of us. Yeah, I'll leave it for tomorrow. Or, or you distract yourself, or you, 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 you put it to the back of your mind. And then in, on another occasion, it comes up again. You know, I really do this, I make this mistake again and again, or I have this failing, I have this bad habit, I have this tendency, I acknowledge it in myself, but it's not enough to motivate them to fix it. Right? So Avram is that the idea that right after, once he realizes Hashem is pointing to the fact that it's hot is a problem, has become a problem for him, right? His attachment, so he immediately wants to fix it. He recognizes it. Now what happens? We said another detail. So the Midrash is zeroing in on these little details because actually you have a totally different perspective on the story when you read it through the eyes of the Midrash. Because when you read it through the simple meaning, it's just, it, it, Avram gets a commandment to kill his son. He goes, he has a little conversation with his son where he's kind of keeping his son in the dark about what's really about to happen. And at the moment of truth, God stops him from doing it and says, you know, Chazak That's the story. You don't know why, why is he doing it and what's really going on here and, and what's the significance of any of these details that the Torah chooses to highlight and so many of the details that it doesn't choose to bring to light. But the Midrash is, is showing you when the Torah emphasizes something, gives you three words to describe Yitzchak or four words, you know, that's because it's showing you that there's a reason for that. He had to, that Avram had to remember a prophecy. It's important to remember that a prophecy is a, is a cognitive experience of the Navi. It's a, it's a, we call it, you know, we, we can use a, a, a word borrowed from the Greek, an epiphany, right? It's an, it's an insight that the Navi has. That insight that the Navi has is dependent on their own intellectual readiness and willingness to see the truth. And even a Navi can have a blind spot. So the fact that it penetrated through, Abraham was able to see it. And then he acted on it. What's Bayom HaShlishi? So it says, Why couldn't he tell him to go somewhere local? You know, he has to travel all the way to Haram Moriah to do this. You know, from Be'er Sheva or, you know, to Haram Moriah, it's pretty far. You know, it's, it's a long journey. Okay? Yeah, exactly, but that's exactly right. Or He made him overwhelmed. Meaning, that he didn't do it with proper forethought. He acted, he, he's, he's crazy. This guy's a crazy old man. He went and did something on the, you know, sometimes people do impulsively. We, unfortunately, we read all the time in the news about people that in, you know, kill other people, including family members or other things, and they do it in a moment of passion, in a moment of anger, a moment of jealousy, and, or, or because of alcohol or drugs or whatever. Terrible yes, thing. One, one of these people actually, they did it just because they were fed up with the way things were and they want a way out yeah, and they happened. didn't even tur- turn the gun on themselves yeah some, a lot of times they do that because a lot of times they realize after they've done it that they, they, they just messed up their life you know they realize it but sometimes they don't so the point is that and, 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 I, and, and I often find myself I read these stories in the news and I say what was this person thinking they go in this moment of anger they don't realize they're destroying their life why, why do they do that you know, why did they do something so crazy? But people do it. So the point is that somebody gets in and says, see, we told you this Avraham guy was a crazy nut. He goes, uh, you know, on a moment when one second he's telling everybody about all this, you know, this deep stuff. But we knew that he was, you know, he really was a crackpot because the next second he goes and he kills his son. So the fact that it took him three days means that it was something that he thought about. It was something he reflected on. It was something he processed. It was something that he really took seriously. 
But again, what is that? What is that really? That's not just from the perspective of umota olam. Although the Rambam actually even mentions that in Moran Bukhim, that it shows you how, that the conviction that he had in doing it, that it was something that he had absolute forethought. It wasn't in the moment, but it also shows you, and 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 the way the midrash is going to is going to portray it to us, that there was an internal process that hap- had to happen. Okay, and um, but the way that the midrash depicts an internal process is by anthropomorphizing. And that's part of the, uh, what's amazing about Midrash, that Midrash speaks about psychological things, but it speaks about them in a story. It doesn't give you a lecture on psychology. That would, that would be boring, for, you know, especially for, you know, for the average person. They have the abstract ideas about psychology. But when you hear it in a story form, if you're looking really to understand what the Midrash is trying to get at, you'll immediately be able to see between lines. And I think we've already set up enough of a framework that when we read it, we're going to get it. Okay, so it says, He saw the place from afar. And um, let's just skip that part. I want to come back to that part because that's more connected to Echari uh, Ratzon. Uh, let's, let's jump down to the last paragraph on the first page where it says, satan malo kidmut zaken. That, that the Satan came to Abraham and he came looking like an old man. Amalo, he said to him, where are you going? See, uh, uh, and by the way, you notice this is like all in Hebrew. This is not uh, Aramaic, right? I'm going to pray. Well, why are you bothering me? I'm just going to pray. So I never saw somebody going to synagogue carrying a knife and wood and, you know, a fire to make... What, what, what do you mean you're going to pray? What are you, who are you trying to fool? You know, we might be there for a couple of days. We're having a little, you know, we're having a retreat, spiritual retreat. They're going to be there. Uh, and then we're going to, you know, we're going to cook and bake. So we need the fire. We, you know, we have, we have to slaughter some, some barbecue. We're going to need to eat something, some kebab while we're, uh, while we're over there. So, you know, th- that's why I have this. So he said to him, so the Satan says, Amalo zaken, lo You think I wasn't there when Hashem told you to go take your son and kill him? An old man like you, you think you're going to have another chance to have a child? You're going to go kill the child that Hashem gave you at the age of 100? You think you're going to, uh, you're going to have a, uh, another child? Alright, so he says, You're going to go and listen to this like, uh, must, he's calling Hashem a mastin. He's saying like Hashem is the one who's like in, who is provoking you, who's enticing you to do this crazy thing, and you're going to kill somebody, and you're going to you're going to be you're going to be a criminal. You're going to commit murder. It wasn't a trickster. It was Hashem. I'm not going to listen to you. Now, what is this part of the midrash really trying to say? What is it showing you? It was an internal struggle. Right. It's himself. Right. He's looking in the mirror. Exactly. He's, this is what he's thinking. Am I crazy? Am I? I'm going. I'm, I, for a hundred years, I waited to have a child who's going to carry on, and now I'm going to go kill him. And I, am I really? And I'm going to murder somebody in cold blood, innocent person? And and not to mention destroying his entire future in terms of everything that he tried to build, but he's going to take the life of his prison. Am I crazy? Have I lost it? What am I doing? He's rationalizing himself. Maybe I heard wrong. Maybe I misunderstood. Maybe I'm 
fooling myself, meaning he could have questioned his own, in his own mind. But why would he question in his own mind? Not because the nivwa wasn't clear, but because of his own emotional resistance. In other words, why do we start questioning something that we know with our mind to be correct? Because we don't want it to be correct. Right? We don't want it to be true. So the, that's, and that's what the Rambam says in the Mora a lot, that meaning that to show you, and the Ralbagals talks about it, that to show, and I think a lot of the other Mepharshim in the, in the Kodolot, they bring it up too, that it took those days, even the pshat of why it took those days is because to show you that he was absolutely sure that this was the, what, what he heard from Hashem, and the Midrash gives us an insight into psychologically what would somebody in this position really do. They would question it from every angle. They would bring up every doubt. They would bring up every possible misunderstanding. Not because it really wasn't clear, but like we, if you want to take an example from what's coming up in Rosh Hashanah, we read about the mother of Sisra, right? We, that, that's, where do we get the idea of 101 uh, 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 blowings of the shofar? We learn it from the mother of Sisra. The mother of Sisra is waiting for her son to come back from the battle. She's waiting by the window. Now, of course, he was a bad guy. It's hard to sympathize with him. It's even hard to sympathize with his mother who says, I'm really, I bet he's raping a lot of women and having a great time and that she's very proud of him. It's like, that's What's a, Sisra? Love. Sisra is a, ba- a general who is uh, attacking the Jews in the book of Shoftim. So his mother is waiting by the window and it says, Vatiyabib. She starts to cry and her friends say, No, don't worry. I'm sure he's going to come back. You know, what is, it re- what is really the point? She knows he's not coming back. She knows he's not coming back. Right? But she's in denial. So she's coming up with every story. Oh, I bet he just took so much time collecting all the treasures from the battlefield and all the girls that he's going to bring. That's why he's late. Coming up with every excuse. And you know that this happens all the time when people go missing. God forbid, you know, that that should happen. They'll go missing and, the, and, and really the end has been terrible. But what are the people that, you know, the people are saying, oh, he's going to come home. He must have gotten stuck on the road. He must have gotten delayed. He must have this. He must have that. He got a flat tire. Whatever they imagine, uh, you know, uh, in terms of what, but they know deep down inside that something's wrong. But they come up with every excuse. So that's what it's saying. Really, Avraham knows the truth. But when you're emotionally attached to not wanting to see that truth, you're going to come up with all kinds of rationalizations and you're going to have to, your mind is going to have to overcome those rationalizations and overcome that emotion to be able to act the right, <laughs> the right way. Like if, a, you know, and this happens all the time when we're faced, that's part of why, why do we bring up the mother of Sisra and Rosh Hashanah? Because she is us. You know, because the idea is that we recognize the truth, but we, we, we're not processing it. We're in denial also. And she's weeping because she feels that conflict, the conflict between what she knows. We don't actually read it on Rosh Hashanah. It's a Haftarah that we read uh, one of the days of the year because it's the, it's the Vorav, Atashar Vorav. We read it with, uh, with, um, uh, with Bishalach, I guess, with one of the, with she, one of the Shira weeks that we, uh, we read it. No, I don't think, oh, is it? No, no, Hazinu is, uh, no, maybe Bishalach. I can't remember, but we read it for one of the after all that relates to uh, another shira. And uh, yeah, look at which one it is. The reason why I'm mentioning is because they say, why do we do the 101 blast? Oh, because of the mother of Sisra. She, that was how many times she, she was sobbing. Right? Is it Bishadah? Okay. So that was how many times she was sobbing. So, uh, so, so, and it's in the Shirat Dvorah, because the Shirat Dvorah contrasts the different women, herself, Ya'el, and the mother of Sisra. It's a motherly 
uh, a motherly uh, story, right? It's a story about uh, where women are the, uh, are the main players in the story. So she also ends with, 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 with the mother of Sisra, but the mother of Sisra is this figure that, like most of the time, like I often say when it comes to Tanakh, we're much more similar to the bad guys in Tanakh than the good guys most of the time. Right? The good guys are like people who really live by principles and they're so, they're so great and they're so holy. And we're much more, we, we love to sit in judgment of all the kings, for example, who ignore the Nevi'im. Or, or we love to sit in judgment of Paro. Why, can't, why doesn't he listen to Moshe Rabbeinu? But that's much more like us. We hear a message again and again, a true message again and again and again, and we deny it to the end, to the last possible moment that so we can't deny it anymore. That's us. Right, so it's much more similar. So we're much more like the mother of Sisra. We're looking out the window in denial about the reality that we know in our mind to be true. That's what, so Avram Avinu is not like the mother of Sisra. Avram Avinu is actually able to recognize his blind spot and resolve it. Okay, that's, the, that's one piece. And then when we turn to the other side, so yeah, yeah. Things in the, yeah. It's interesting that the heading starts off by saying Satan comes as an old man, which is then how he first... Uh, but exactly, because it's himself. Right, exactly. And right, that's why I say, he's looking in the mirror. Right. right? And, and it's interesting also, meaning, we were talking three days, I think it's not how you're reading it, but when you first hear it from Hashem, it's obvious what Hashem wants. It's, you can deny it, right. you heard the words. Three days later, you're thinking to yourself, you're playing around with them, you know what, it's been a couple days, maybe I misheard it. Right. Right. You can start you're misunderstood. You can start to delude yourself that it's not exactly, right, you start to change the picture in your head. Right. No, he didn't really mean that. Like Errol Bog says, oh, that he would have said, maybe he just meant to bring him up on the mountain. He didn't really mean to this. Even though that's not the shot of what he said. Oh, maybe he meant this. He could have rationalized in all kinds of ways. Exactly. And it just ends, though, with, meaning he's going through the whole argument and, and he, he, he ends up saying, no, this is what Hashem said. I heard from Hashem. That's it. He'll discuss. Right. Meaning, we're going to this route. It's really playing out of the measure of really saying that. Like, going right. The, the Midrash is said. helping us to identify, right. basically, with Avram. This is the, he went through a process. Just like we would have to. It's not like he's just a, a cardboard character that's moving from place to place. Even the first Midrash, sorry. Even the first Midrash, it seems like far-fetched to have this conversation about whether or not to send whether or not right. to bring Yitzhak because Yitzhak's already gone. Right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, he's gone. But maybe he thought he had to go get him. I don't know. A person will go to great lengths to come up with, an, a, you know, to come up with a rationalization if they want. Yeah, that's one thing we're very good at. Yeah, we're very good at. Like uh, what? What happened? Not according to the pshat. According to the pshat, he's already gone. You know, already gone. But were you going to say Moshe before? It says the conclusion of him speaking to himself is and I'm not going to listen to you. Meaning, I'm going to. Overcome what I actually want to do myself. Right. I'm not going to listen to my own, my own, you know, bad side. Yeah. And if only we could say that. And it's very interesting because, like, in that book that I was talking about on Shabbat, the Atomic Habits, it's one of the things it talks about verbalizing. We were talking about it also on the, during the Kiddush. Verbalizing what you're about to do as a way of, you know, I'm about to give in to my desire to eat very unhealthy food by eating this cake. It's, it's what he says to do. Like, I know that it's wrong, but I'm still putting it on the plate and I'm doing this because then you're, you're like, wait a second. Why am I doing this? You know, because you verbalize it. Really yeah. yeah, it says to do that. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually it's a pretty it's, it's a really good strategy. I, that's why I don't do it. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. otherwise, how am I going to eat the game? Um, it's, it's a book I talked about on Shabbat called Atomic Habits. It's a really good book. It's a very good book. 
uh, relatively new. It's not brand new, but it's not old. It's like uh, you know, it's a it was a be, it was a be, like a bestseller, New York Times bestseller. It's basically about how to change your habits for the good, how to get rid of bad habits. And it's a very good book. It really has a lot of insight because one of the things it talks about is the cumulative effect of small behaviors, but then it also talks about what holds us back from improving ourselves and, and ways to implement constructive change and ways to extinguish benefits. It's really a good book. Is this one like of those small laughs can go a long way kind of books? It, it, it has that as a part of it, but it's not the only thing. That's said at the beginning of it talks about that, but for good and for bad, meaning small bad things also add up for, to, to be bad and, and small good things add up to be good. And so you shouldn't, you shouldn't downplay the significance of one time because one cookie that you eat, you eat it every single day, you eat out 365 cookies. You know, it's like, uh, it, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, now, some people will say that's a great accomplishment. Other people will say, well, that's bad. Um, the, but, you know, you read one parak of Navi, you read 365 parakim a, a, a year. It's like uh, one parak of Navi a day. So, like... Things add up for good and, and for and for bad. So that's one of the things he talks about. But then he talks about how to actually, you know, make it happen. It's a good book. Anyway, so now let's look what happens now. The Satan is not finished yet because then halach me'alav v'nidmal b'chol. Now he becomes a young child, young a young man, I should say. V'amad al yemino shel Yitzchak, and he goes to Yitzchak. Now remember, according to the midrash, Yitzchak knew what was going on, right? According to the most of the people like Ibn Ezra, those who take the story. Uh, according when, to the Pshat, as soon as they left, you know what was going meaning at, at this point, whatever point the Satan comes, it's not exactly clear. But, but he didn't know what was going on when they were going. Up right when they were first going, and he yeah. asked him. So he, according he, to he them, you see, there are two ways to read the conversation. The truth, right? I, I, I realize what's going on. Right. It depends on how old you think it's. It's a whole. It gets on the whole issue and the whole complicated side issue of how old was Yitzchak at the time of the Akedah. That's right. Because according to the Midrash, he's like a grown adult going with his father to the Akedah. According to the Pshat, he's a kid. Right. So, like the Ibn Ezra and most of the Pshat-oriented Mefarshim, like the Rambam son, the the. The Rabbi Avram ben Rambam has a very colorful description of. He said, "My father pushed this midrash away with both hands." The one that he was there, <laughs> that he was thirty-seven years old, you know, like he really didn't like it. Um, so the shot of it is that he was a kid, but the midrash takes it that he was also aware of what was going on. Now, there could be some happy medium in between that he was aware of what was going on on a kid level, but you know he wasn't an adult. But the midrash portrays him always as a young man. Okay? Now, so that's important for understanding the Midrash. He, he came to Yitzchak and he said, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to learn Torah. He's a yeshiva boy. You're going to go alive or dead to the, uh, to, to the baby. Right? Who can learn after they're dead? You are a sorry guy, the son of a sorry woman. Think about how many fasts your mother fasted before you were born. This old man, he went crazy. He now wants to kill you. Right? So the Satan is saying, get away from this crazy man. He's about to kill you. Yeah. Even so, I'm not going to violate what my, what my creator says. And what my father says. So that's why he went to his father and said, do you see what this one is saying to me? Don't listen. Right? He's just coming to weary us. Right, so the idea is that, according to the midrash, both of them are struggling with 
going through with this. Even Yitzchak is aware of it and has to agree to giving himself up and being Moser Nefesh for this uh, Korban. That's the, so the Midrash interprets always Akedat Yitzchak as being actually a Zechut of both Avram and Yitzchak, not just Avram. Uh, you know, the, that one of the proofs that the, uh, the Pshat Mefarshim bring to say that he wasn't really uh, that old is that it always gives Avram the credit for, for the Akedat when in reality, if you're 37 years old up against a 100-year-old guy, you could probably take him really easily and get out of there. And, you know, so therefore it really should be Yitzchak that was the one who did the... Who did the big sacrifice, not Avram. Hundreds of millions <clears throat> greatest lifespan. <clears throat> yeah, still. Still, uh, you versus uh, somebody in their 50s, 60s, uh, if you're working out and strong, assuming you're strong. You, know? mm-hmm. you, you probably could break loose and run away, at least. Run faster. Anyway, the point is that's how the Midrash interprets it. But either way, whether you take it that Avram, that Yitzchak was also an, a, a willing participant or not, it doesn't even matter. The main point of the Midrash is that it's trying to show you that both of these individuals were in their own mind. Again, the, the Satan is not a person that comes to Yitzchak and says, hey, Yitzchak, I want to talk you out of this. It is Yitzchak, right? Meaning, right, it's showing you, what am I doing? I'm going with my father is, is getting dementia and I'm going along, right? That's what he's thinking in his mind. In other words, that's what the Midrash is saying that Yitzchak is thinking in his mind. The Satan is a personification. Think of what my mother is going to, uh, how I, my, my mother went through to bring me into the world. And now I'm going to go do this. And again, this is a, and this is echoed in Sharei uh, Ratzon, right? Where Yitzchak says, what will my mother do? Bring her my ashes and all this, right? That's what Hashem says to to, to Avram in the Piyut. But then when, when Yitzchak says to his, uh, uh, tell my mother, you know, that her, that her joy is gone. It's like the most moving part of it. It's so sad to think about that because you think about the, the heartbreak of, of the mother and everything that she did to, to bring this child into the world. The Midrash brings a human element to the story. The, uh, and the Piyut also does. The Piyut very much draws from this same approach to the Akedah of getting into what would it really take for a person to make this kind of a sacrifice? What does it really mean to make Hashem the absolute one and only priority in your life? You know, at the highest level. And then Bayom HaShlishi, so it says after that they, the Midrash goes on and says that uh, since it was so close, why take three days? It's not really that close, but the Midrash, in the Midrash world it is. Okay? So once the Satan saw that they didn't accept any of his great arguments, uh, Avram went into water and it reached up to his knees. And they came after him. The, the, you know, the entourage came and it reached up to their neck. And Hashem turned up and said, Hashem, you chose me and you instructed me to do this and you revealed yourself to me and I am unique and you are unique and through you, right, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to, uh, you know, your name is going to be known in the world. And you told me to go bring Yitzchak as a korban and I didn't stop anything. I'm trying to fulfill this mitzvah. Why are you doing this? You're drowning us. Okay? And then Hashem made the, uh, uh, made the water go down. Okay? So this Midrash, so the Midrash thing at the Satan made the water go really high up to their neck. And Avram turns to Hashem and says, my whole goal is to sanctify your name in the world. That's all I'm about. And I, I, this is all I want to do. And I'm trying to fulfill this mitzvah. Consistent with that. Right? And you see, again, the Midrash emphasizes what I always emphasize in, 
all of my shiurim and probably say it if somebody was doing like one of those skits where they make fun of the catchphrases of the rabbi that they say again and again, probably the thing that I always talk about is, you know, Kiddush Hashem and Yichud Hashem. That's the whole purpose of everything that the Torah is about. It's the whole purpose of what Avram is about and the whole purpose of what the Jewish people are about. And you see that in this Midrash and that's what Avram is saying. What is the idea of this Midrash though that Satan made the water go really high? So, the way I would interpret it, and I think that if you look at it from a literary perspective and from a, from a Midrashic perspective, you'll see that this is really a persuasive reading of the Midrash. The Midrash is saying things come up along the way, right? Things come up along the way. And you can say, you know, it's kind of late. Maybe we should just turn back. It's not, there's a very high water here. And, uh, you know, this is very difficult to cross here. Maybe, you know, this is a sign that this is not really, you know, what we should do. Let's go back. You know, we, we ran out of bamba, we don't have any snacks for the rest of the way. A person will come up with all kinds of circumstantial... The point is that once their psychological internal conflicts were put aside, then you look outside and you notice ob- obstacles get magnified when you don't want to do something. Oh, it's too cold, it's too rainy, it's too sunny, it's too hot, it's too cold, it's too nice, I don't know, too far, too close. You know, there's everything getting up. The, 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 the Ramchal talks about that in the Silat Sharim. It's towards the beginning of Silat Sharim. He talks about how the person says, oh, it's too cold, it's too hot. In the summer, they don't want to go. In the winter, they don't want to go. You know, to the Beit Midrash, to the Beit Knesset. And he talks about the, you know, a person will magnify the external factors. The, how, if you really wanted to do it, would you, uh, you would go do it. You know? It's so like I always say to my kids, they, they're too, they don't like to get up early for minyanim. The opposite of me, they, they don't have... Me neither. not like me. Yeah, it's a very common problem. <laughs> you didn't have to confess it, but a uh, very common problem. So, uh, but if they're getting up to go on a trip, oh, I, how did you get up at four o'clock in the morning? To go on the trip? How, did, how did you do that? Because they want to go. Oh, they're going to see their friend. Oh, they'll get up at five in the morning and do their tefillah and everything. They can go. Right? All of a sudden, everything changes. Why? Because when you really want to do something, when you don't want to do it, oh, I went to bed too late, and I was too cold when I woke up, and it was too hot when I woke up also somehow at the same time. It was both too hot and too cold. You know, and every other problem. But when you really want to do something, you look past it. And I think that's really what the Midrash is saying. It's saying that the external factors of the trip weren't simple. There were things that Avram could have used as an excuse, is the point. Just like he had his internal conflicts, the idea of the water rising up to his neck, he could have easily had an out and said, okay, obviously this is not working out. We can't get through here. There's no way to cross here. Uh, you know, the road is closed. Uh, this is that. And uh, we're going to go back. As sometimes happens when you're on the way to go somewhere and the road is closed or this or that. And you just turn back and say, sorry, I couldn't make it. There was this problem and that problem and, and they couldn't make it. Your tire was flat. So instead of changing a tire, you just decide to go home or whatever. So the point is external factors become insurmountable when you don't really want the goal that much. So when it describes the Satan making the water go up to their neck, it's basically saying that situations were, there were over the course of the three days. Why did it take three days? Because over the course of the three days, there were definitely situations where they said, ah, you know, this trip is too much already. Let's go back. And they could have made every excuse and they didn't take it. Instead, Avram said, no, I want to do it. Okay. And, um, <laughs> and that's the, and then it goes on even to say, what did the Satan say? He said to Avram, you know I heard something from behind the curtain of Shemaim that 
Yitzchak is not really going to be burnt as a burnt offering. It's really going to be a seh, which means the ram, right? It means that because the ram is adult uh, sheep, right? He said, and, and Avram ignored him. And, and then the Satan said, this is the punishment of the liar. Even when he tells the truth, nobody believes him. Right? Right? Liar. Meaning, even liar, like somebody who lies, right? Even when you tell the truth, they don't believe you because you lost your credibility. The idea is that even though Abraham had, and I think this might also tie in with like what the Ralbag was saying, that it said that really what Hashem, Hashem never contradicted himself because he just said, bring him up. He never said, actually kill him, actually burn him. So, so the, the point is that there, there could have been an intuition in Abraham's mind, in the back of his mind, that this actually might not, this actually might not uh, happen. And that's why they even say that when he said to the, the, the young guys, he said, that there was like a little prophecy in that, that he was going to come back, that he still believed maybe Hashem will, will change it, but he was willing to do it. The point is that, that, that he was willing 100% to do it if that wasn't the case, but in the back of his mind, he did have the, the possibility, the live possibility that maybe this, uh, this won't be. Right? So that, that's the point. But he didn't allow even that to stop him from going through with it. And, what is, and the Midrash even goes so far as to say in the Midrash Rabbah that when the Malach tells him not to kill Yitzchak, what does he say? According to the Midrash, can, can, can I just make a little cut, you know, because I already have the knife. I want to fulfill like a little bit of, a little bit of a korban because I, I, I won't kill him. I just will do a little bit of, uh, a, a little incision. Meaning he felt like he had so overcome his resistance to the idea of doing it and he was so prepared and recognized because what is the whole idea of Akedah Yitzchak? Even my child really belongs to God. Doesn't belong to me. Belongs 100% to God. Was given to me by God and if God wants him back, he give him back. Right? That he had gotten to that point to such an extent that he was like, I want to show it in some way. I want to make a little cut in here. And the, the Malach said, don't do. But that's why the Malach says, don't do anything to him. Because the Midrash says, after he said, don't kill him, he said, how about a little, a little cut? No. Right? So, the, so the, the point is that he didn't have to do anything to him. He just had to reach psychologically, mentally, the point where he would have done it because he understood the idea, this child fully belongs only to God. Now think about how that changes the way he relates to him, the way he raises him, the way he conceives of the role that he has in being the father to this child. The whole reason why Hashem doesn't give them children until so late in life is for that reason. So they have the time. That's why it says... To motivate them. Not just that, but also to give them time to think. Like, like think about... You know, it says that, they, that Hashem wanted to hear the tefillot of the tzaddikim. He wanted to torture them by making them barren. So you had tefillot of tzaddikim. That's, Hashem needs to hear the tefillot. So he tortures them. Tortures them? Why? Right? But you see that no. You see really from the example of Abraham and also from the example of Hana. That what happens as a result of those tefillot? A totally different kind of parent comes out of those tefillot. A totally different kind of perspective comes out of those tefillot. So now, there wouldn't have been a Shmuel if Chana had just had a regular child. He just would have been another kid named, uh, I don't know, uh, Yankel. Running around in the, in the Gan. No, no connection to, uh, uh, no connection to uh, the Shmuel HaNavi that we know. Why was there Shmuel HaNavi? Because she prayed for it and she, hoped, and she was denied it. So she really thought about why she wanted it and she changed her whole perspective on why she wanted it and that brought out a totally different child, a totally different parent. And that's what it means that you notice that Rivka also had difficulty having children and Sarah also did and, and Rachel also did because in all of those cases they needed to go through a process to reach a level of understanding of what it really meant to be a parent so they could be a, uh, the best parent. And that's also the reason why Michal Bat Shaul never had a child. 
because she showed from her reaction to David's behavior that she wouldn't have been a good mother. She would have raised, she would have raised the wrong kind of child. Right? So what the, what the Chazal are showing you is that it's, it's weird. All these normal people who are not great Gidolim and Sadiqim, they just have babies like, uh, uh, like there's no tomorrow. They have tons of babies. But Avraham Avinu can't have one child. Rivka can't have one. What's, what's wrong? So it's saying because for them it's not just having a child. For them it's about their mission. It's about understanding what it means to have a child and to be a parent and what it's for and that the child is not mine. The child is a vehicle of, really is, is a gift of Hashem, which doesn't mean a gift of Hashem to me. It means that Hashem brought this child in the world and made me responsible for guiding them in the right path so they can be a servant of Hashem. Like the Rambam says beautifully, he says a person shouldn't have children so they will serve him or so they will, you know, so they will take care of him in his own old age or just for the enjoyment of having a child. He says he should have them so that they will, because he hopes that there will be tzaddikim that serve Hashem and maybe they will be gdolim, gdolei Yisrael. Right? Meaning he, he hopes for the sake of the Jewish people and for the sake of Torah to bring ch- children into the world, not for himself. That was what the goal was. So when Avram was slipping in that, and Yitzchak is the ultimate example because Yitzchak, literally they left at the prospect of having a child. His name is Yitzchak. That's how far gone the idea was of them having a child. Okay? And they had one. And even so, Avram needed to go through the Akedah in order to be able to fulfill his, his, his mission. He needed to go through the Akedah because he had the, the party of the Higamel Yitzchak? Well, according to the Midrash, that's what it says. But that shows, that's just a symptom that shows that of the problem. That it was more about me and not about Hashem. Right, and I would say like, and also when you're talking about Avraham Avinu, you say more about me and this, it's really hard to judge him by our standards. The fact that Avraham somewhat was enjoying it for, you know, one day at a party was like for Avraham Avinu, a low level. For us, that would be like totally fine, you know, because we were still spending $500,000 a year putting our kids through Jewish education and all the other stuff, right? So, um, so like, we're, 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 we're showing that we want the best for our kids and it's not just about us because if we're about us, we wouldn't be making all those sacrifices, right? So like, in, but so for Abraham though, to even just have a party that didn't acknowledge that this child was given by God and really belongs to God and the only reason I was given this, God, this child was, it was a miracle, which means it's completely not about me. It's completely about the future of this legacy of Yichud Hashem and Kiddush Hashem that I'm going to pass on. The fact that he had even a little bit of, of attachment to the child for another reason, he had, to, he had to work on it. That's what the Midrash is trying to say. And that's what the Satan, at the party, the Satan saying that to Hashem means that in Avram, that feeling was welling up. He was just having the feeling of being a happy parent because he had a child with his wife. Like, not for any other reason. He was losing sight of it. Not that he would ever actually lose sight of it, but even a little bit for him was uh, uh, too much. Yeah. That actually matches the Midrash Quite a while ago, uh, Abraham with uh, that midrash that oh Abraham kept all the mitzvot, including the hero of Tamshilin, yeah. And you went through that that, Hashem, that he was so connected to Hashem that everything he was doing was for the sake of Hashem. So it was on that level, and the party makes sense that yeah, even a small defect. Right, Look, well, you see that. 
anything that the tzaddikim that you know the are always held to such a high standard because they're they have to be the model for everyone else and we rise and fall based on them. So for Moshe Rabbeinu to slip up even one time and mess up in a bad way, even though it was only one time for David Melech, even one time he had a better record than any king, but he messed up one time, he gets a very harsh punishment. And part of that is for his own development, but part of that is to show you that this was the only time that you should emulate everything about about the person, just not this. Because they, you know, but that's, that's what they have to be held to that standard. So the, the Midrash that we skipped, I just want to cover it before we, yeah. yeah uh, wasn't it like a, a sinful for, for the, uh, the Aaron and Sarah to think, to think uh, oh, we're not going to have a child. <laughs> I mean, isn't it, isn't it inappropriate? Well, I mean, it's, uh, it's, like, <laughs> it's a good question. Don't trust Hashem? Yeah, so in Avram's case, it says he, he laughed because he thought, I'm not worthy of it. I'm not worthy of it. So, like, that's okay. To say I'm not, that's ridiculous. I'm not worthy of such a grace, grace from Hashem. Because, he, because a tzaddik never thinks that they're worthy. That's why it says, why does it say about Moshe Rabbeinu, va'et chanan, that Moshe Rabbeinu did tachanun, so to speak, to Hashem, and said, please let me go into Eretz Yisrael. It says, because tachanun is from the language of um, chanun, means a free gift, matnat chinam, it's a free gift. Meaning for a tzaddik, he never thinks I'm entitled to anything. He always thinks it's a gift. Right. So, so Sarah, they say, she more thought it, it is impossible. It's not possible for that to happen. And that's why Hashem criticized her and said, why is she laughing? Abraham was saying, I'm not deservant. That's okay. Sarah was saying, it's not possible. God doesn't do something. God is going to break the laws of nature. Now you could say, wow, Sarah was so respectful of Hashem that she thought that, it's, that Hashem would never break the laws of nature. Right. 90 years old. Right. So I, I think that's why. This is just a speculation. I'll throw this in as an aside. But there is a Midrash that says that why is it that she was preparing all that food for the Malachim, but in the end she never served the Chalot. Right, she made bread. Right, she never oh, she, yeah, she didn't serve it. So what? Is, so it says that she she went into nida that day. So the so the bread became tameh. Right. So so I that midrash is very interesting, and my my speculative explanation of that midrash it's only a speculation, but I I think it might be right. Is that um, is that Sarah wouldn't have been criticized for laughing at the idea that Hashem would give her a child, if not for the fact that she saw that she went into Nida that day. Meaning, meaning that for a person to say, that's ridiculous that Hashem is going to make a miracle. Hashem doesn't, that's not how Hashem operates normally. I wouldn't ever think of that, right? But the fact that her cycle started again was evidence that it was true, so she shouldn't have said that, right? She should have thought, of, thought that it was possible because she saw that her cycle came back. Now that's an anomaly and weird and, and very unusual, but since she saw the evidence, she shouldn't have doubted it. Whereas the implication, to my mind, is if she hadn't seen the evidence, she would have been justified in saying that that's absurd, that God is going to make a miracle, then give me a you know? And when, I, when I'm way past menopause, then there's no chance. She says, uh, because she says, yeah. It says, right, it says that she stopped having her period. It's what it says in the Pasuk, that that's why she, that's why she laughed. But the Midrash is actually coming saying, yes, up till now that's true, but she, that day she had something, so that showed that maybe that should have given her a sense that that wasn't exactly true, that, oh, maybe, maybe it is possible. 
right? Meaning even within nature, because she had already seen that, okay, so there are anomalies in nature. You never know. Strange things happen. Sometimes you read these things about 70-year-old people that have uh, babies. You know, you don't know. She, did, she probably didn't read about that, but, um, you know, but, but it happens. Yeah, the Midrash is really trying to point out to you that she was justified. Yeah, I think, that, I think what the Midrash is pointing out to you is that don't think, because it's a mistake, a person, she this is my own left. thought. Right. right. My, my, my take on the Midrash okay. is this, that a person can come away with the wrong interpretation of that Midrash. This is my take on it. So it's not sacrosanct, but um, that a person could come away with, from the story with the wrong idea that, oh, if somebody says God is going to do something totally crazy, you should never doubt it because God is, uh, does miracles and God can do anything. So if, if I say that maybe tomorrow the Beit HaMikdash is going to come out of the ground and fall out of the sky, or, I mean, there are some people actually believe that, but, you know, maybe tomorrow uh, 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 a fourth level of Shari Rachamim is just going to magically be here in the morning or we have another minyan up there, okay? What do you mean? Uh, I'll say, I don't, how can you laugh at that? God can do a miracle, right? So you'll say... That, that's what you learned from the story of Sarah because she shouldn't have laughed because God can do a miracle. So what is the Midrash saying? No. In any other circumstance, she would have been right to laugh because that's ridiculous. Right? And that's not how God works. He doesn't work with miracles as a matter of course. But in this situation, because she had her cycle come back after it being gone, she should have wondered to herself, that's very unusual. That's an indication of something different. But if you don't have an indication, then laughing would be normal. And maybe that could also explain, although the Chazal don't say this, so I'm going on a limb on that, but why Avraham, when he laughed, like everyone says, how come Avraham wasn't criticized? Maybe that's why. Because that was before she had any evidence of it. Again, you could tie those two things together, maybe, maybe, you know. But anyway, last part of the Midrash, I know it's getting late, but I don't want to skip this part because it's also in uh, it's, uh, on the first page. The, we didn't do the fourth paragraph where it says, Avram said, if I tell Sarah about this, Nashim Datan Kala. Now you, hear, you see from here that Datan Kala doesn't mean stupid. It means like emotional, right? Bidavar Katan. Yeah, there's emotionally sensitive. If I tell her this, even a small thing, she's very sensitive, certainly a big thing, right? But if I don't tell her and I steal him away, she's going to commit suicide, right? So, so what did he do? He said to Sarah, let's have a little uh, coffee, you know. Let's have a little, let's have a little something to eat. She said, why all of a sudden are we sitting and having a nice cup of coffee? She said, you know, we're old, we have a child, we should eat and drink, have a nice, uh, you know, a little date together, you know, we should, he's just being romantic, you know. She went and she made the food and was sitting down and he said to her, you know, when I was three years old, I recognized Hashem. He's telling him. And this child is growing up and we haven't really, you know, properly educated him. You know, he hasn't had a good educational experience. So she said, so he said, you know, there's a place far from here that it's a good place for educating children. I'm going to take him there. And she said, Lech Shalom. Right? Now, this is directly, basically taken into Echare Ratzon. Because it says, Amar uh, Avraham, uh, Amar Le, I can't remember it by heart so well, but Chamudech Yitzchak Gadal Velo Namad Avodat Shachak. Right? Very good. So he knows better than that. He has a better memory. But that's, that's uh, I don't remember the words for, but something like that. Yeah. Right. Right. She says, go ahead, just don't go too far. 
And so he says to her, he's got, he grew up and I didn't train him, I didn't educate him. So the point is that her emotional part is also involved in the story, but she doesn't go through the Akedah, implication being that she wouldn't have been able to. The Midrash is saying that this is something that, for a mother, impossible. And I think that's very interesting. I think that's really very interesting. Because it's saying that even the greatest, because Hannah didn't kill her child. She saw him all the time, brought him clothes every year, new outfit every year and all that. She didn't like totally disconnect from him. She knew her child. She just didn't raise him at home. She wanted him to rise to greatness and serve the special function for Am Yisrael. But to tell Sarah, oh, Hashem said, I'm going to kill Yitzchak. That was something that emotionally she wouldn't have been able to handle. So you see that this test was something that Abraham, under, that Abraham even understood was for his own development, but not something that would have been appropriate for hers, which means that not every lesson, not every developmental stage and, and step is for everyone. And even Sarah Imenu, who was a Nevi'ah, and the Chazal say, you know, also say she was a greater Nevi'ah than Avraham because there were certain blind spots that Avraham had in certain cases that uh, it says, Shema uh, Bekola. Listen to, listen to Sarah. And it says that shows you she was a greater in Nevi'ut than Avraham, meaning that there were certain things she could perceive that he couldn't perceive, right? And and, yeah, and even so, this area, seemingly because it's so core to the identity of a mother to have that attachment to a child, that it would not be possible, even for a prophetess of the level of Sarah so high, to, uh, to extinguish that. So that. That's really interesting. Right, but that and that's part of Echaratzon also, though, because even though it wasn't a test for Sarah, there are consequences for Sarah, and those consequences are part of what Avraham himself has to weigh in his own, you know, meeting of the challenge, because how is she going to process it, and how Yitzchak also is saying, oh, sichul uh, you know, go tell my mother that her joy is over. And, you know, the child that she had at an old age is gone. And all this. Right, he didn't do that. So, meaning, but they were both concerned about those consequences, even though Avram didn't even reveal to her what was going to happen. And, of course, there's a Midrash that says she died at the Akedah, which is the, which is the reason why they say that Yitzchak was 37, because we know that Yitzchak was 37 when, when Sarah Imenu died, because she died at the age of 127. So if she actually died right after the Akedah, then that would mean that he was 37. That's where they get that idea. Not from to mention question. that Sarah was 90 when Isaac was born. Right. So when, so when she, di- she died at 127. So he was 37 when his mom died. And that, so if the death of Sarah actually happened right after the Akedah, as it's written in the Torah right afterwards, so then that would make Yitzchak 37. And that's where the Chazal get that calculation from. But of course, sometimes the Torah has time gaps. It goes from Avram being 75 to being in his 80s, to being 90s, to being, you know, it it jumps all the time. So it's not necessarily, are we forced to say that Yitzchak was that age? Anyway, the point is that the different characters in the story, it gives us the human side. It shows us what they had to go through, what they had to overcome to meet this challenge. And it also shows you something very important, that not everybody is cut out for every challenge. And even somebody who is incredibly great, there might be certain areas where it's so against their nature that it wouldn't even be possible for them in a meaningful way to uh, overcome or conquer a certain part of their nature because it's core to them, like a mother to a child, the attachment of a mother to a child. All right, no, that's, that's it.
I think this was a very a beautiful intro to Rosh Hashanah. Now when we read HR Ratzon, everybody can, uh, you know, can appreciate even more some of the language and some of the twist. Oh, yeah. I, did you want to do it? I, I thought maybe it was too late. Because then it talks about uh, how it talks about how Haram Moriah became the place of the Mikdash. Okay? So it says in the beginning it was actually a valley. But since Hashem decided he was going to put a Shekhinah there, he said uh, the, a Melech cannot dwell on a low place, so he brought the land together and made the Haram Moriah. That, uh, that's why it's called Haram Moriah. That the mountain came out of the fear of Hashem, meaning that the land was, so to speak, scared and gathered, gathered up. But the idea that it ties in the whole concept of the Akedah being linked, and we talked about it when we were in Israel too. Well, the idea, right, is that this, the whole concept of Korbanot and the whole concept of Mikdash is tied to this idea of the Akedah, of uh, subordinating everything that we have to recognition of God, that that is the ultimate and everything else literally gathers together towards that end. Literally, the earth is pulled together to create this mountain where Avram is going to do this demonstration, but this demonstration ends up being really the paradigm of all sacrifice and the paradigm of really a dedication, as Avram himself says in the Midrash, to the idea of Kiddush Hashem, to the idea of proclaiming Yichud Hashem that the Beit HaMikdash stands for. And that's why the story ends with this place is going to be the place that people say, Bar Hashem Yira'ed, that the you know, the, and, and that's what we talked about in Israel, about that being the first mention, really, of Harabayit being a significant place, but that the Akedah is the foundation of that, and, it's the, and that's why it plays a role in Rosh Hashanah, too, because the foundation of our recognition of Hashem's Malchut and Hashem's plan for the Jewish people and for humanity is rooted in this story as well.